Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Jeff Warren, welcome to the i3 podcast. Thanks, Wilder. Um, you're probably one of the few academics that I know whose work uh, has a more practical application um, to the investment industry and practitioners. And to a large degree, this has to do with your background. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the various roles you had in your career? Yeah, uh, well, before um, sort of deciding to take the second phase of my career, which is in academia, um, I spent about 20 years or so in uh, financial markets and really I had sort of three roles that I was playing there. One, I spent some time in investment banking, specifically agency brokerage and the research departments of agents, you know, tied to institutional broking. Um, and there I did roles from uh, being a, uh, a stock analyst to an economist to a strategist and, a, and also a bit of time as head of research. Uh, I also spent some time with AMP Investments, as it was, was called in those days, as an equity portfolio manager, um, focusing on, a, on a Australian, equ- Australian equities with a long-term focus. And uh, the third part of, part of my career was with Russell Investments, where I was the, the Director of Capital Markets Research in Australia, and that was attached to the asset consulting function within Russell. Yeah, so you, you, you actually have really managed money. Um, do you think that gives you a different perspective on, on some of the academic uh, discussions that are going on? Oh, absolutely, yes, without a doubt. Uh, I think it was very, very helpful for me to do it the way around that I did, that is, you know, be in the markets then become an academic. It didn't help me make, become a better academic, but it, it helped make my research more relevant, and I think that's, that's quite important. Yeah, so what made you switch to academia? Um, I like to think of it, I, I, I wanted to make a bit of a difference. So it wasn't just about um, earning a large salary, because it certainly took a big drop in salary to become an academic. Uh, it was more about doing something a bit more meaningful. And I've always had my eye on teaching. I, I like um, you know, teaching people, bringing through uh, younger people and helping them out. Um, and, and that was uh, an opportunity to do that. And that's the continued today, where, you know, where my role is a, conven- is a convener on the student managed fund that ANU has set up, which means that um, we're, we're giving uh, students a pot of money, to, real money to manage um, and uh, helping them to do that. And I find that that is a fantastic teaching gig. Yeah. So how, how is that going? Are they uh, having any success? Uh, well, only, it's only just early days and they've just made a couple of stock investments at this stage, uh, but they've largely been in the... Um, in, in building their investment process and, uh, and actually I think they're uh, learning quite a bit from it. Um, and we don't measure performance um, quarterly uh, or even yearly. Um, they're evaluated on, on how well they build the legacy towards you know, creating a, uh, a better fund for the long run. So. Yeah, so is the focus more on asset allocation? Oh, it does both asset allocation and active Australian equity selection. So the portfolio is divided in two. And um, 
the equities team can has a, a concentrated stock picking portfolio uh, with a very, very long-term focus, and the asset allocation team has the other half of the portfolio and can use ETFs to swing the asset allocation in the fund. And we also have a risk and compliance team, a CIO, a relationship team, which is like the, uh, the business development manager equivalent. So we're set up like a, a small funds management organisation. Um, and it's uh, running endowment money, so it, it, it thinks like an asset owner and thinks like an endowment fund. Yeah, so you're really preparing them uh, for a career in the funds management industry so they don't actually have to learn on the spot when they get a job, but they can immediately get up to speed. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we're also teaching them more than just how to pick a stock that you want to buy. We're teaching them how to manage portfolios and everything that goes with it. That actually might tie nicely into some of the research that you've done. Mm. Um, one of the, the research papers uh, uh, focused on long-term investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a topic that you've done together with the, the Brandes Institute. What is long-term investing? Is it simply that you buy and hold forever? Or what, what is really the long-term there? Is it about holding periods? Um, no, not necessarily. It's I argued in that work, and by the way, the Brandis paper was part of a continuum of research that I did in that area, um, and it originally came from uh, from a collaboration with the Future Fund when I was at the Centre for International Finance and Regulation, and um, and the Brandis paper is a follow-on from that that stream of research, and. Um, and what we're arguing the initial piece was it's really a mindset more than anything else. And the mindset has to be fixed on maximizing your long-term outcome, not trying to beat the market in the short run. Um, and I think that's the way to look at it because what that means is it's not necessarily a buy and hold thing. Because you're a long-term investor doesn't mean you sit there and you uh, you hold something for the long term. What you do is always reevaluate in terms of how it meets your long-term objectives. Now, one of the best examples of this is something that came out from a character that some people know of called Jack Gray, who's currently at Brookvine. And he said he faced this situation himself, I think, when he was at Sun was at Sun Super. And that is they had bought something that they thought was cheap and it went up massively in value, like it could have tripled. And he wanted to sell it. And he was asked, why should you sell it now if you're a long-term investor? And his answer is because, you know, the long-term returns no longer look attractive. The price has gone up a lot. Now, there's nothing inconsistent with a long-term investor making that sale, in my opinion. It just means that, you know, the, the investment you have doesn't suit your long-term objectives anymore. So it's more the mindset that that decision was made through the frame of what it means for the long-term rather than just the view that we're long-term investors we must hold forever. Yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, I think Jack was uh, earlier on our podcast as well. So yeah. <laughs> talked a little bit about that. Um, so it's more a mindset. Um, but what are sort of the key characteristics of a long term investor? Because I looked at the paper and some of the attributes almost seemed more leaning towards behavioral finance rather than a set investment strategy. Uh, it is to some extent behavioral. That's definitely a player. It's hard to sort of focus on the... Uh on the long term, and you always get distracted by the short term. So that that's there. Um, but I actually think the bigger issue is the agency problem. Um, and this is an idea that came from uh, David Neal, the Managing Director of the Future Fund. And I remember when we first sat down to talk about the project, uh, David was in the meeting and he said, I think long term investing is an agency problem. 
And it took a while for that to sink in. But where that comes up is that um, what what the industry is designed at is a, is a whole chain of agency relationships where the investor is delegating something to some organize, investment organization, the board is in charge, and then they delegate down to the internal management, and the internal management delegates down to the managers. And the problem is that you're giving somebody some funds to invest for the long run, but you have to continually monitor them and work out what they're doing. And so what are you going to monitor on if you know nothing more, nothing otherwise, is how they performed. And so if they perform poorly in the short run, there's two possible explanations. Long-term strategy is still okay. They're still a good manager. Let continue with them. Or they may be a bad manager and something is wrong. And you never quite know because the future hasn't arrived. The long-term hasn't arrived. So in that sort of gap between knowing what the outcome will be and having to monitor people under a agency relationship, and you just can't trust them for the long run. You can't. You don't have the right to do that. Um, that's where a lot goes wrong, and that's where you see people taking their funds out when the performance isn't there, and, and so on. And that behaviour then encourages short-term behaviour on behalf of who's managing it because they, they, need, they feel that if they don't deliver the short-term performance, then they won't have the gig anymore. So I think that's really, really crucial. And it comes from the fact that the long-term is the long-term and it won't arrive for a long time. So all you've got is sort of short-term performance in the meanwhile um, to, uh, to deal with that. So the solution to that is to try and... Um, broaden out the way that people are evaluated beyond just focusing on the short-term performance numbers, such as looking at how they behave and ask if they're investing in line with agreed objectives and pursuing the long-term diligently. Um, and do you trust them? You know, issues like that come to the fore. Yeah. Is it, is it possible to set um, sort of a guideline or a framework around that where when these situations occur, you say, okay, in addition to performance we have to take up some of these other topics as well. Uh, yes, um, I think the the strategy is basically you need the closer engagement between the principal and the agent. Um, so, so let's say the asset owner and the fund manager. And so that the, the fund manager is explaining to the asset owner why they're making the investments so they know what's happening. And when the performance comes out, they say, okay, it didn't work out, but we did everything we agreed you understand why we did it. It was the right thing to do in the time. Um, and our strategy is still on course, even though we've just had this wobble. So that closer engagement, I think, is, is really a, a crucial to that, to breaking that nexus. So you've got to not evaluate purely on the performance numbers. You don't want that all the, the only information you've got about whether the person's doing a good job or not. You need to go deeper. I, I reckon the best way of distinguishing a short-term and a long-term mindset is, is it doesn't come from me, but the idea that short-term investors are worried about price drivers and long-term investors worry about value drivers or value creation. And that sort of often leaves you down the fundamental path. You know, what's the long-term cash flows? What's the long-term returns? What's the long-term outlook? Um, so what a short-term investor will do as, when they're worrying about price driver is that how... how over the next three months, what determines the return you get on any stock, for instance, is just whether the price goes up and down. So you immediately begin to think, what are the type of things that will cause that price to go up and down? 
well, is the market going to revise its earnings? Is there somebody else with you know selling a big line of stock that'll push the price down? What what news flow or rumours are in the market? Those sorts of things. When you're investing for the long term, what you're concerned about is if I buy this stock today, I may have to hold it for a long period of time, although I may not. But will it deliver value for me in the long run? What drives that value? And you start to think about: Is it well managed? By you know, can I trust the management? Uh, what opportunity, investment opportunities does it have? Does it operate in a good, solid industry? And importantly, am I buying it cheap given the cash flows I think it might develop? So that's probably the best way of looking at the dichotomy. A long-term and short-term investor will focus on different things, and a long-term investor has a different mindset and a different focal point. Mm. So is, is it fair to say that uh, a short-term investor would more look at technical trends in, in prices rather than the underlying fundamentals of, of a stock? Oh, absolutely. If, um, if it helps them predict where the price is going to go in the short term, there's nothing wrong with them looking at technicals. A lot of people would beg to differ that technicals work. That's not the point. But yes, that would definitely sit within, within uh, the scope of a, a short-term investor. Yeah. So does that then also mean that certain investment styles uh, lend themselves better to long-term investors than others? Uh, yes, but it's interestingly not neither value or growth. It could be either. It's fundamental. Um, so I, I don't think that's the distinction. The main um, dividing line tends to be around uh, more investment, uh, momentum-orientated styles. Are they short-term or long-term? And even there, you can debate uh, whether they're inherently short-term. They do tend to be associated with short-termism, and it's largely because momentum predicts short-term price swings. But I discovered when I was working with the, fu- with the Future Fund, they're arguing that if momentum generates a premium because it's be- exploiting some behavioural you know, behavioral errors that the market makes, and that premium is there consistently, then as a long-term investor, you'll maximise your long-term outcomes by capturing that premium. Yes. And so they were happy to back uh, momentum strategies as a long-term investor. So I think it's right to say that some styles are more inherently long-term than short-term. But but I wouldn't. I'd be reluctant to actually lump this into a style bucket dimension. Is what I'm really trying to say. Here. Yeah, it's not as black as and white that you can yeah. say value is long-term and momentum is short-term. No. Not as black and white as that. So another topic that you looked at is uh, probably could be related to long-term investment, and that is uh, bringing some of the asset management functions in-house, a trend that we've seen Mm. here in Australia with a number of the the large funds. But you were, when you originally looked at the issue, you were a little bit sceptical of that movement of bringing asset management in-house. Why was that? Well... As an academic, I like, don't like to think I was sceptical at all. I, I like to think I was totally balanced and open-minded <laughs> before I did the research. Um, and were it, you? <laughs> I, I like to think so. <laughs> but the point was, I suppose, and you're getting to here, is when I came out the other end, I'd sort of leaned towards the view that in-house management was a good thing. But let me explain why and let me highly conditional that statement. Um, what we discovered, because this project, by the way, stepping back, was interview-based. So we went and spoke to 20 people around the industry and got their views on in-house management. Um, and not surprisingly, funds that were doing it were quite positive on it, and there were some skepticals, skeptics, and they were largely sh- sh- sitting around the fringes. 
But what we, you discovered when you spoke to the funds, that they were doing it in a very thoughtful manner. They, it wasn't, didn't, you didn't get the sense that it was driven by hubris at all. Mm. And there's also a number of checks uh, that ensure that um, they weren't just going to sort of go out and bet the farm thinking they could do something that they, they couldn't do. They're also, in many instances, need to justify what they're doing to the board. And the boards were sceptical. And they were asking them to, to justify the position they're taking and, and so on. So I think there was a natural check there. Um, the other, the other ch- check in this system is that uh, it's being done by people who are reasonably experienced in the sense that, you know, it's not just super funds who know, don't know what they're doing. They're employing people who have investment experience often have been fund managers themselves in the space. So they're not ignorant people doing this. Um, and I'd say one third thing I'd put in there is that, and this was the argument that I hadn't thought of before we went in, was that it's being done in little discrete pots. So there's this impression that big in-house management is one big bag thing, and when you do it, you're relying on everything in-house. But the funds were all doing it in different spaces. Like somebody might be doing private equity co-investment. Somebody might be doing it in their equity funds. Some could be doing it in an active strategy in the equity funds. Some could be doing it as sort of some sort of core strategy. And you realise that each of these little pots was actually somewhat independent. And as one of the uh, larger fund managers put it, up, put it to me, is for, for this to blow up the fund, it's got to go wrong in each of those little pots. And even then... Um, in the equity, say in the equity proportion, they're not managing the entire equity portfolio in-house. They're managing a portion of it in conjunction with external managers. So when you sort of looked at that, you say, well, where's the fund going to blow up from in-house management? Now, I said I'm going to, cav- I'm going to caveat that, and I'll, I'll move on to that. Um, I suspect that it's cautious at this stage, but I wouldn't rule it at getting out of hand at some point. And one of the uh, very large... Um, asset owners or super funds we spoke to said that when we first did this, the board was extremely sceptical and we had to justify them to them. The, now I'm finding the board is pushing me to do more and that makes me uncomfortable. So it's like that when you get comfortable and you think it's going to be successful and you see other people are getting successful, I think if we go into that, that stage, then you've got to start worrying because people will start doing things they shouldn't be doing. And that was one of the, the questions uh, I, I put to you is, you know, that the original phase, we, we've come quite a long way. And yeah. some of the funds, I know, manage almost um, a quarter of their assets in-house, which is a fairly fairly large chunk and, and are planning to expand that further as well. And it just made me think because uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I spoke for the podcast to Rob Brugge and he was at State Super at the time that they decided to go the other way. They had an internal model and they decided to go external. And partly that was driven by, at the time, there was uh, Nick Leeson who blew up uh, the Bearings Bank. And um, to a degree, it it, it only needs one person to cause a major uh, uh, catastrophe. And the other thing there was that they said, well, we feel that we're doubling up on risk um, because we have the agency risk internal as well. Um, do you become more worried about some of the downsides of in-house management? Well, the points that Rob Prugge has made, uh, I think, are valid. You know, you need to take that into account. And I think this is all a matter of um, scale and scope that you're pursuing. 
Actually, I mentioned I used to be a broker and State Super, as it was in those days, used to be one of my clients. And that was a 100% internally managed equity portfolio that then became Axiom, um, which was uh, employed as a manager in, in a multi-manager structure. And then they ultimately hived it off to Deutsche Bank. So that's the history of that one. So you could e readily argue that in the early stage, that was too much. If it's part of a multi-manager structure, that's fine. Um, and I, but I also think, how are you doing it? Um, if you try to manage a large equity fund, 100% active internally, you run into a whole lot of problems. You know, you got, you, you, you're totally beholden to your agency problems with that manager you have internally um, and everything that goes with the fact that you own them internally. You're relying on them. It's active. It'll have capacity problems. I think that sounds like a recipe for disaster. 100% internally factor-based portfolio, core portfolio, that might be okay. Um, but a multi-manager structure has a little bit more uh, stability to it, I think. And you also have an in, a benchmark for your internal manager, and that's the external manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, part of this uh, drive to in-house management is because the funds are getting larger and larger. Yeah. Um, it's no secret that there's also a regulatory push behind funds becoming larger and merging. And we were thinking about some of the other research you have done into capacity. Hmm. Scale is not great for all asset classes. It might be great for direct investments, infrastructure, but equities might be more problematic. How do you look at that issue? I think that's, that is definitely the case. And um, another one of the projects that I did when I was at CIFA was, it was around capacity. There was three papers here. And I'm going to talk about the second of those three, which is around capacity management for asset owners. And it basically argued that capacity may differ across the different asset classes. And, um, and hence, depending on your size, you would tailor the way you invest to, to your, your size and your ability to exploit capacity or, or where capacity hurts you. So a small manager, a small fund, could go into, uh, say, you know, small cap equities, um, take concentrated strategies and so on, uh, where capacity is not a, such an issue for them because of their small size but it's very hard for them to go into unlisted property and unlisted infrastructure, for instance. They're just not a player and nobody will want to partner with them probably. Um, as you get larger, you change the way you invest. The type of equity, you start to really feel capacity constraints in equity markets. You might not even bother with small cap equities. They don't move the dial for you. How you invest in, in large cap equities may change towards something that's a little bit more benchmark-like with a little bit of alpha added into it, and then you start to concentrate on, on uh, the unlisted markets where scale is actually beneficial. And I think that's, a, that's an overarching way to look at it. You know, it's a horses for courses issue. Um, and there's advantages in being big and there's advantages in being small. You just have to work out which they are and then try to invest along the lines of your competitive advantage. Yeah. In, in the issue of capacity, um, we talked a little bit earlier about different styles and, and how they related to long-term investing. But styles do have also a significant impact on the capacity of a fund manager. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yes, this was uh, really uh, quite a, the the interesting part of our third paper in particular when we went, when we tried to delve into the modelling of capacity and how you worked out what the capacity is, particularly for an equity fund. And uh, this is one of the rare instances where you do the research and stuff comes out that looks really interesting. You go, wow, you know, I didn't expect that. And it was about how capacity emerged when you looked at um, different styles. And we were investigating... a. a a quant-based momentum strategy and a value fund, which is Investors Mutual Limited, they they gave us their data to look at what it was, uh, to how they were you know, to estimate, help estimate their capacity, and just help the project along. And um, what we realised is that most people looked at capacity through the trading lens. How quickly could you trade? How effectively can you trade? And as you get larger, you can't trade so effectively, so you must hit capacity. And what we worked out is that that was just far too simplistic. There's lots of drivers, and they're intimately related to style, which is the question you're asking. One of the key players is what's the pro time profile of your alpha? So we found with IML, they made virtually not much alpha in their first year when they bought a stock, and it all came in years two and three. So for them, getting set quickly did not matter at all. The trading side was virtually irrelevant. They could take six months to get set and they probably still make the same return. But if you're running a momentum strategy, getting onto the, onto the stocks you want to buy quickly really matters. Okay, So trading matters will matter a lot there. Another thing we found uh, was where's the source of your alpha? If you're making your alpha in small caps, you're going to have less... Um, you're going to have less capacity than if you're making your alpha in large caps. Uh, but it's not only where, but it's also the breadth of your opportunities. If you're running a concentrated 10-stock portfolio, or for instance, or 20 or 30 stocks, you have to, and, and so you're trying to exploit a limited number of opportunities, you're going to cap out quicker than somebody who's trying to take a quant-based strategy, for instance, that's spread over maybe 60, 80, 100 stocks. Very simply, if you... If you, if you have 20 opportunities, you're going to have the half, half the capacity who has somebody who has 40 opportunities. So, so these sort of things are intimately connected with the way that the investor invests, and hence capacity is very closely related to investment process, I think. And, as, and just trying to see it through the lens of um, trading, I think, is far too narrow. Yes. And I thought one of the interesting findings as well that you uh, um, have mentioned is that the capacity um, should probably be less seen as a hard limit and you start seeing dilution of the earlier returns much quicker than um, probably people are expecting and where they would set their, their limits. Yes, I think I, I know what you're leading at here. And um, so I, I did say some interesting stuff came out of this research. So the way we set up our model to, to incorporate all these different influences, we say, all right, we set up a model and then we keep on running it until we can't invest any more dollars that generates an alpha over a, a certain level, let's say 2%. And when I ran the model, lo and behold, it said we can't invest any more beyond sort of so many billion dollars if you want. But yet I looked at average alpha and it was 4 or 5% much higher, but isn't my hurdle too. And what I realized was, hey, this is the difference between marginal and average alpha. And the model was saying, at the margin, we can't put any more dollars into this strategy and generate the return we require. But what, we, what we've what we already got invested happens to be earning 4 or 5% alpha. 
And so what I realised is, is that the, the industry, in a sense, by saying, OK, keep on investing until alpha is zero or maybe some level, let's say 2%, is, is giving license to managers to keep on investing even though that marginal dollar is not earning any decent alpha. And, and so it does imply that capacity is, is actually a bit lower than the headline alpha number would suggest in the headline analysis. Um, and we call that a sort of effective capacity at that point. That's when you get it. Now, what happens if you exceed that? Um, it doesn't mean that you necessarily start generating negative alpha, but what it does mean if you exceed that level is you're paying active fees for something that's just adding in benchmark performance. And, um, and I think it's really, you know, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. And, um, and I think it's somewhat at odds with the way the industry has looked at it so far. Mm. So do you, um, have you spoken to any of the asset owners about these issues? And, and do you know how high on the agenda it is and how well they manage those capacity constraints? Yeah, I, I, get, I get the impression that the industry knows it needs to do a capacity constraints, but is struggling really with how to come to grips with it. Um, and that was the motivation for doing this research in the first place. It didn't seem to be done properly. Uh, so, um, so I said most of it's been trading orientated and its focus and the way people have measured capacity so far. Um, the asset consultants often, I think, know capacity is important, but they're relying on the managers to tell them what it is. And somebody quipped to me once, the capacity of any manager is always a billion dollars more than what they currently manage. You know, that sort of, that sort of um, cynical view. Um, and um, I'm a, it's a little bit harder to say exactly where the... Um, where this, where the super funds and the asset owners are on this, I don't really have. I wish I had a better insight into that. I'm, I, I'm, bet my bottom dollar they know it's important, but I also bet that this, the fact that it's not being dealt with that well in the industry means they don't have as good a handle on it as well. Mm. Would be interesting to see some more discussion on that point. Yeah. Um, your your latest research uh, looks at a, a different uh, aspect again. And um, it looks, to a degree, I framed it in, in the sense of retirement and um, developing a comprehensive um, income product for retirement, uh, a SIPR. Um, but you look basically at a probably a more academic level about different ways of constructing portfolios. And instead of using the modern portfolio theory, um, you look at using a utility-based approach. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the advantages of that and also how it ties back into the bigger discussion around developing these retirement uh, strategies? Okay, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start off with two things to set the context. One is what led me to this particular idea is that I was involved in the um, MDUF, uh, Members Default Utility Function uh, Initiative started up by David Bell at Mine. And I was on the working group there. And uh, so my work is, I, I view as like taking that a little to the next step um, and focusing particularly on which utility function you choose to drive MDUF. Okay. Uh, the second thing I'd say for context is what I believe will lead the industry into looking at utility functions is the fact that it has to develop SIPRs. Because I do not think mean variance portfolio theory is does the job there. I don't think it's adequate, largely because what you're dealing with is a complex multi-period 
dynamic issue. And it's very hard to collapse that down into a mean variance framework. So mean variance might do if you're asking yourself the question of how is my portfolio going over the next year? You can work out a nice looking portfolio in terms of mean and variance and it probably does the job okay. But if you're going to say, okay, how am I going to design an investment strategy and a withdrawal strategy for the next 30 or 40 years? And I can't, I can't see how that can be done in mean variance space. So I think utility functions and utility functions are going to be integral to evaluating outcomes in that in, in when you're doing that analysis. So I think I think the industry is going to have to embrace utility functions in my opinion or find some other solution that I haven't thought of yet. Yeah. So as a quick definition, what what, what are utility functions? How would you best describe them? Uh, they sound like something that you want to avoid because it's deep in the academic literature and that's been the case. But I think the easiest way to think of it is that they're just a scoring system and they score outcomes. And let me dwell on this a little bit. When you do mean variance analysis, what you're saying is I have a preference for a higher mean and avoiding variance. I So what you're not doing is evaluating outcomes. You're evaluating some measure that reflects the underlying outcomes. What a utility function does is says, let's look at all the outcomes and put a score on each one and then add them up. So you can do a simulation, for instance, and get a distribution of outcomes. You can put a score on every part of that simulated distribution and add them up to say, you know, what score do I get? And then you're basically trying to pick the one with the best score. Um, so it's basically a scoring mechanism. And if you sort of just reduce it to say, this is just a way of scoring a range of outcomes, it's sort of the sort of technical fear might start to dissipate a little bit, I think, if you look at it through that through that prism. Yeah, and I think one of the big advantages of using uh, this approach is that you can customize it easier to individual circumstances where you can dial up one particular score or dial them down. Um, and that is particularly relevant for the retirement space where people will have different circumstances, different account balances. Um, and so... It made me think, why hasn't this been used more widely? What, what is sort of stopping the uptake of this? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is that this is not what is taught in universities. Everybody is familiar with mean variance analysis. If you go and do a finance course, that's the first thing you're taught. Modern portfolio theory, CAPM, the rest of it's all in that space. So that's what people grow up with. That's what they're familiar with. Secondly, the industry has a lot of infrastructure built around mean variance analysis. Um, you know, the fin Financial Analyst Journal or the Journal of Portfolio Management, you know, are full of it, okay? Um, people have committed themselves to it. Um, a lot of the, uh, what I'm discovering and talking about this, and I get the sense that a lot of asset owners out there have built their portfolio analysis structure around it, and they're not going to throw it overnight just because some academic puts their hands up and say, hey, why do you use utility? So it's a legacy issue. Um, the third thing is that utility functions have, uh, they, they, they not only look like they're hard to implement, but people charge them with being too hard to characterise. So that I've said, oh, how are you going to choose a utility function? Is probably the main response I've got. I don't think it's as hard as it looks, but I think that's sort of like... Um, that's something that's turning people off. It's the fact that you have to go and then subjectively choose the utility function. 
Mm. Yeah, because I think the original work looked basically at one utility function, and your research is looking at four, if I'm uh, if I'm correct. Um, and I was talking to an investor last week, and I mentioned that you were working on this. And when I mentioned, oh, this this incorporates four utility functions, they they almost were startled. That's that's way too complicated. Yeah, um, I, I think it was three utility functions and four examples. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, but that's that's generally it. But yeah, but I'm doing. I, I think that sort of looks looks all right. Is they're scared of it being overcomplicated because you're asked to do four things. It it misses the point of what I'm saying here, and that is, um, you're not trying to sort of say this is the right utility function and just impose it on the analysis. Um, and, and then this is why I say I'm a, do, trying to develop MDUF because it chose a particular utility function. In fact, that's what the working group was about. Which one should we use at this stage? But I think you need to turn the problem on its head. You should say, all right, let's understand that investor, understand their needs, understand their preferences. Now let's go and find a utility function that represents what they want what their preferences are over outcomes. So the sort of thing you're doing is saying, okay, is this person concerned about the size of their balance in their superannuation fund, or are they concerned about generating a target income? And I would use one utility function if it was the former, and another utility function if it's the latter. All right, let's say they're worried about target income. Next question is, how much pain do they feel if they're below their target? Is that is that a life-ending event for them, or does it leave them destitute, or have they got tolerance for that? So you might design the utility function accordingly. How much preference do they have for being above their target? Do they do they give that much credit, or do they just want to reach the target and they're happy with that? Do we have a bequest motive on the end of that stream? Um, you have to ask whether that's relevant. Um, but what you do is you, you get to tease off uh, what, what is the preference over these outcomes that this person or this institution has, because I think they, they can be applied to institutions or, or organisations, and then try to embody their objectives and preferences within a function that can be used to score those range of outcomes. That's the way to look at it. So it's turning it around. It's not saying get something out of literature and plug it in. It's saying go and design it. Yeah, and you said it's uh, applicable to institutions as well. Um, and I was thinking about the issue of risk appetite. And mm. to a degree, I think it's almost more applicable to institutions because institutions deal with certain constraints, certain yeah. time frames. Well, when you come back to individuals and you ask them, what's your risk appetite? Um, they probably have no idea. They just don't like to lose money. So I think it's harder to say this person is really risk-seeking and this person is really uh, conservative because it probably depends much more in which stage of life they are. Um, how does that come back into the model, the risk appetite? Um, I'd like to think of it as implicit rather than explicit. So um, can I just go back to contrast with a... Uh, how risk appetite might be used if you were doing mean variance. You'd basically say, here's mean, here's variance. What number do we put in front of the variance to, to, um, to penalize variance? Okay, that's your risk aversion. Um, it implies a preference over variance and you're trying to encapsulate it all down in this notion that I have an aversion to volatility. Okay. Um, 
what happens if you go into utility functions, which are scoring outcomes, is you don't have to directly say, what is your risk tolerance? You ask what your preference over the various outcomes is. You try and encapsulate that. And so um, I, if I go back to what I was saying about uh, the retiree who was worried about a minimum level of income in retirement, the question is, how much do you dislike being below your target? Does it leave you destitute? Or is it something you can bear? It's not exactly a question or a survey about their risk tolerance. It's a question about how do they feel about various outcomes. And then you encode that in the utility function and they use that to evaluate the outcomes. So I think there's a sort of like tweak there that says you're not actually trying to get another metric, risk, risk tolerance. You're trying to encapsulate preference over outcomes. Yeah, yeah. So looking ahead, what, uh, what other research topics are you investigating? You should have asked me this one before. <laughs> um, I, I sort of counted up how many, I, have, I tried to do too much, and I counted up how many projects, live projects I have on my list, and it was about 13 at the moment. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, um, but I am doing some more, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing some work on how risk evolves with investment horizon, um, doing some work on how on the value of imputation credits to retirees with a site on the um, Labor Party potential change in policy and what that might mean. Um, there'd be two examples. Uh, we're trying, I'm trying to do a bit more work in the capacity space, specifically see how capacity might vary across asset classes. And we've got the help of Mercer with that, where they're giving us access to some of their manager data. So there's sort of three things that are in the pipeline. Yep, and at the same time, you're also training the next star managers for uh, the endowment yep. fund. <laughs> Tried to get them to do as much work as, as possible. Excellent. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for your time today, and it was great working to you. Okay, thanks, Wither. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. Thank you.